Welcome to the 28th episode of the God Engine Cast, a weekly podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus wargame produced by Games Workshop. In this show, I'm going to sit down with all-round great person Graham Sanders and discuss his alternate match play system that he has created for the game. Uh, I advise you to go to the uh, show notes now and look to read the TGF as we talk through it. Though it's not necessary, it will add a lot to the show. Greetings, Princeps. You may be listening to this and wondering why you've heard this episode before. Well, if you're one of the 90 or so people who've listened to this episode while it was up previously, this is a new version. Uh, I inadvertently uploaded the wrong MP3 to the app when I was putting it together, and you had the unedited audio of my conversation with Graham, complete with all the excess noise and no filtering, and a lot of ums and ahs and me going off to check my notes. It was fairly cool. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some cuts of it floating around the internet forever. But regardless, this is the corrected version with the slimmed down and trimmed audio from me and Graham. I hope you appreciate it more. Um, Sorry for the mistake. Attention, Princeps. The God Machine cast needs your help. Long-time listeners of this show will have noticed something different about this week. The ad support I was getting has ended, and as such, at the moment, you won't be hearing any ads. At this time, there is no other ads I could run, if even if I'd wanted to. And this is a bit of a shame, as I was using the small amount of funds from these ads to cover some of the costs associated with this podcast. So once again, I want to direct folk to my Ko-Fi page. It can be found at ko-fi.com slash godenginecast. This site allows for folks to make small donations that help cover any additional costs that would come up. I would love to have enough funds put together for me to go out and subscribe to some additional pieces of technology that would help me produce this show, and perhaps even get an artist in to make a good show logo. It's something I've played around trying to do, but I haven't quite got it down. Anyway, I don't urgently need any funds at the moment, but I could change very quickly. There are numerous bits of technology I use that if they were to break, would make production of this show very hard. Anyway, if you can't do that, and even if you can do that, one of the best ways to help me at the moment is to review this show on your podcasting app of choice. Reviews help the algorithms point other people in the direction of this show. And I would love to have a bigger audience. In theory, a larger audience will make it easier for me to get more ad-supported money eventually. So, if you can go out and leave a review, you are helping me as much as if you were giving me a donation. So, yeah. Okay. If you have any questions about the show, you want to leave questions for me to answer in the show, or you have comments or feedback, please email me at god.engine.cast at gmail.com or reach out to me through Facebook or Twitter. I'm not that active on Twitter, but I have a pretty good Facebook page. Uh, just reach out to me there. I'm the God Engine Cast. At Twitter, I'm at Cast Engine. Anyway, thank you all for the help so far. What I've got from the people has meant a lot to me. 
and uh, we'll get on with the show. Before we get to the main section of the show, we we'll discuss news from Games Workshop and around the community. All in all, it's been a pretty quiet week for Games Workshop. It's all getting ready for the big Horus Heresy release of the latest Black Book and the latest Primarch. Um, it's all very cool, but it's not really the focus of this podcast. I hope those who are interested in 30k are having a great time with it, and I look forward to seeing the new Primarch on the table of events that are occurring alongside Titanicus. The community for Titanicus has been pretty quiet this last week. Uh, I haven't seen any signs of anyone receiving the new Forge World models yet, but that may be just in my circles where no one's ordered them. But I think the post service in both the UK and America are running a little slow at the moment. Anyway. For myself, I have started all ahead steam on getting everything ready for the Iron Halo. I have my painting table downstairs completely decked out in terrain, and I'm trying to work pretty promptly through the airfield table I'm planning, as well as finishing up the last few buildings. All in all, I've got it all nicely in hand, and have finally rolled out the final additions to the event pack that went out to the individual people who said they're attending uh, today. Um, I think I've got two spaces left if anyone's interested in attending, and i am actually gone to the point where I'm going to be pretty happy with this event. Um, I know it's going to be a lot smaller than I planned, but I think how everything is in the world at the moment, it's going to be more than big enough, and uh, it's going to be a great test for events that I'm going to do in 2021. So I have a listener question today from listener Fraser. Fraser contacted me through Facebook and basically let me know that he's pretty new to the hobby and looking for ways to make his Titans have a bit more survivability on the table. He's running a collection at the moment, which is two Reavers and four Warhounds. He's been running them as Legio Fortidius and using the um, Lost Sons Legion trait to swap out uh, a Warlord in a Maniple for a Warhound. Um, but he's been having some issues with his Titans being blasted off the table. Uh, he says he's been running the Perpetua Maniple and he doesn't, in a hopes to increase the resistance, but it doesn't seem to be helping. And I can understand why. Now, while the Dauntless are really good for their Lost Sons ability to be able to swap out Titans for a different type of Titan, you're not going to get the same benefits. The Perpetual Maniple is really nice. And the ability to get those pluses on repair rolls should work on any Titan class. The problem is, is that at the base level, the Warhound, once it starts taking damage, is in a really bad place. Quite often, once the Warhound shields are down, it doesn't take that much shooting to get to the point where it's destroyed. So you aren't going to get the chance to enjoy the benefits of the additional bonuses to the repair dice. You're going to take the damage and that Titan's going to be deleted. Especially if you're using it in a pretty static way. That, sadly, the mana pull kind of calls for. Emergency repairs stops you either moving or shooting, so you're losing a lot of flexibility with the Warhound. What I think you need to do is actually lean into the style of mana pool you've got. You have a fast recon force. Reavers can move quickly, as can um, the Warhounds. So you need to find ways to highlight those skills. Find mana pools to enhance those abilities and not to worry about how well you can take a hit. The trick will be not getting hit at all. 
what I would advise you look at doing is running a um, Lupercal Light Manipul with three of the Warhounds. Preferably the Warhounds that want to get in close and the Warhounds that are primarily there for stripping shields. I would then run a Corsair Manipul with the two Reavers and the Warhound with the best weapons. Probably a dual turbo laser one if you've got one of those. So what you'll end up with is you'll end up with a force of your two Reavers and your Warhound that can move in any direction on the table. That's really good. I mean, I think the Corsair Maniples is one of the best Maniples in the game. And the reason it's one of the best Maniples is it basically allows you to ignore the fields of fire of Warlords. You activate your Corsair at the end of the, of the phase, like you want to see where the Warlord's fire arcs are going to be. And you get out of the corridor of fire. You put yourself in maximum hit penalty. And you line up cluster of really key shots so you can target the opponent. You will hit them with surgical strikes and they will not be able to shoot you back. But the other side of this is that Lupercal Maniple. Now in, an all, in all possibility, I'd love to see a Lupercal Maniple of, you know, five Titans. You're going to be able to manage it with three, so that's what you've got. But... The Lupercal's advantage is that you aren't stuck in a pack. Deploy every Warhound individually, and they will operate for the first few turns individually. Make sure you can out-activate your opponent. It will mean that you will always be able to get at least one Titan in the best position. You will be able to make sure the opponent is on their back foot when picking uh, arcs, and it will help you keep your Titans alive. As the enemy starts losing activations as you destroy their, their Titans, you can start packing up with the Lupercal Maniple. Um, slowly, that Lupercal Maniple will consolidate together around your remaining Titans, still keeping you winning the activation game and increasing their attack bonus, which will be important because the plus two damage they get in, the, in their packs come into their own once the enemy shields are down. It's not the case in the first few, few turns, so keep those um, uh, uh, Warhounds operating individually. Um, yeah. Additionally, I would look at making sure your stratagem deck included things like Box Blackout, Concealment Barrage, and uh, Tracer Cloud. You want to reduce the enemy's ability to do stuff to you and increase your effectiveness against the opponent. In that first turn, I would strongly consider using Vox Blackouts. You're going to be okay running without orders. All your Warhounds move really quickly. You don't need to go full stride to get in that close. Most of the Warhound weaponries work at about 20 inches away. Just push forward, get some fire rocks, and start stripping shields. By playing the Vox Blackout card, they're not going to be able to do anything like split fire, or first fire, or any of the other annoying things that Warhound Warlords will do to start really hurting you in that first turn of the game. Second turn, you start hitting them with concealment barrages, put penalties to hit on them, and just start picking out the enemy uh, um, Titans. You want to try and get a position where you're taking out an uh, enemy unit a turn. Uh, your Warhounds probably need to be armed with a mix of Plasma and Turbo Lasers with a few Bolters thrown in. Because you're, you're going to want to keep it arm's length initially. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of how I would play the uh, um, missions out. Yeah. I hope that gives you something to think about. And I hope other people have thought about it as well. Um, don't try and ever use a Warhound like it's a Warlord. It just doesn't work. They cannot tank. Even in Maniples where they get to share shields... It's really not worth it. Uh, near the end of the game, though, as bringing back to the loop call maniple with sharing shields, that's something you will be able to do. When you start getting near the point where you've got to secure objectives, 
you've got a few titans in close proximity to one another near the opponent. Getting base contact and sharing shields is something you're going to be able to do, and it will help keep wounded titans alive if you can just, you know, put that one level of shield up. Um, but that's something to do at the end of the game, not at the start, when spreading out, hiding in cover will go much better than tanking up in a block and trying to weather the oncoming storm. So if you've got questions you want to ask me, please email me. I'm at god.engine.cast at gmail.com. Or reach out to me through Facebook. I'm the God Engine cast on Facebook. Uh, more than happy to take questions, and this sort of stuff is a great addition to every episode. Okay, and with that, I'm going to get into the main section of the show. Once again, I'm going to put off going through a narrative mission. This interview, again, is a nice long one. It's pretty close to an hour itself. And I'm trying to keep these episode lengths to under an hour and a half. So what follows is a conversation I had with um, hobbyist Graham Sanders. Graham is a fantastic guy, and he's written this wonderful PDF. It's about 10 pages long, and basically completely rewrites the match play mission section of the Titanicus game. It uses a lot of the rules from the match play system, but he's created his own primary missions, secondary missions, and created great tables of how to generate it. Um, I've been using them recently and been having some great games. And I know it's come up a few times in conversation on this podcast. I know both the Tabletop Tactics episode and the conversation with uh, Lucas both mentioned it. Um, and I'm going to be using this mission pack at the Iron Halo here in a few weeks. So I want to sit down to and talk to him anyway about it. So I thought I may as well get him on the podcast. Um, I will say at this point, there is some noise throughout the show. Um, I tried doing my best to get rid of most of the noise from um, Graham's end. Um, I'm still pretty new at this podcasting gig. I've only been doing this six months, and this is like my fourth interview. Um, so I wasn't great at getting the sound quality set at the start. If you're annoyed with it, I'm sorry. Um, I found it bearable listening it through at even at high speed, so it's going to be fine. There's nothing untoward. I'm going to try and find ways to improve in the future, looking at new techniques I can use. But anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy this, and I'll see you at the closeout. Well, thanks, Graham, for joining me today. Um, so before we get into the main topic, which is discussing of this rules packet you've put together, uh, I think we should probably should start with a standard question. Why did you get into AT, and what do you collect? Okay, so uh, greetings, everybody. My name's Graham. Uh, it sounds like an Alcoholics Anonymous introduction. <laughs> this uh, I've been a I've been a gamer for over thirty years, uh, so I probably started. It was either late eighties or early nineties when I started. So I started wargaming with the end of Road Trader, and then really kicked on with Second Edition Warhammer Forty Thousand. I think what really got me into the game was Space Hulk, and my original Space Hulk game even came out this afternoon to play with my two kids. So I'm dragging a new generation <laughs> in. My favourite game when I was a teenager was Space Marine 2nd Edition, which everybody knows as 6mm Epic. So I played that for probably three or four years as a teenager. That was my favourite game, along with Necromunda. Of course, a big part of that was the original uh, Titan Legions game. Titan Legions was the box set that came out with six Beetleback Warlords, and then you could go along and buy lead miniatures for Reavers, Warhounds... And the Titan Legions box also came along with, I think it was 10 Plastic Knights as well. And that's really what got me hooked onto Titans. 
when Titanicus came out in 2018, then I was interested, but it was too expensive to get into. But I won a competition on the Age of Darkness com- uh, podcast. And so when I won the competition, the prize was the Grand Starter, uh, sorry, the Grandmaster Edition. So I lucked out. There was no way I could afford to buy into the game, although I now spend my time on Facebook convincing people, actually, it's not that expensive a game to get into. Um, But I couldn't get into it myself without winning a prize. So I was very lucky in that aspect. I think the actual price of the game has come down substantially. Um, Because the Grandmaster Edition was just a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they did that uh, Battle Force box for longest time. That was the way I got in. When when that came out, I was like, oh, that's a affordable way to start the hobby. And then I was like, actually, this is 90% of everything I need. And they've done that with the new starter box now. The new starter box, which has got the two Reavers, two Warhounds, and a couple of Knights, plus the rule book and the counters, you've, you've nearly bought everything. Once you've got that, you need perhaps a Warlord, or one other box of Reavers or Warhounds, and then you can build just about any maniple you care to build. So for £100, you've bought into the game, and there's not a lot more you need to buy. Now, of course, all of us have two or three maniples, but, you know, it's the start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all you need to do to convince yourself is, what do I need to play? <laughs> exactly. And once you start playing, then, then, it's easy to, yeah, then it's easy to justify that one extra Titan a year. Exactly, exactly. That's cool. So, uh, what Legion do you collect, primarily? Uh, I've got two Legions. Um, so I started with a Traitor Legion, which had, um, it was my first ever experiment with an airbrush. So it wasn't one of the main Legions. I created my own Legion, which was Legio Eldingar. So I created my own name, and I used the Icelandic language to produce my Titan names. So in Northern Europe, Icelandic is very similar to Norwegian, but I found that Norwegian is too close to English. English is very closely related to Norwegian with a little bit of Latin thrown in there. But Icelandic is similar, but different enough to give some really good sounding names. So I created my own legion. That legion recently got stripped back. I stripped all the paint off. I got the green stuff out and I've converted it into a corn-themed Chaos Titan Legion. So there's loads of green stuff on there, loads of bone effect. Um, it's all painted red and cream and gold. And basically, I've got a Legio of Bane Lords and Reavers and Warhounds, but all with loads and loads of corn detail on there. So that's my Traitor Legion. My... Good Guys Legion, if we can call them good guys. Can we call the uh, the Loyalist good guys? I guess we can. Then, but my Loyalist Legio is a dark green colour scheme with lightning stripes. Um, again, it's an airbrush job for the lightning job uh, lightning strikes, and then just some hand-painting detailing, but two homegrown legions. Okay, cool. Well, as a, uh, I've already had conversations with a few other folk, and... Uh... Someone else mentioned that they've met you at the Legion's Walks event, so I just got to ask, which one of the Legions do you have at that event? Right, that would Steve, based down in Portsmouth, and he's on one of the YouTube channels. And we played our first game at the Titan Walks, and he was an awesome guy. So that was my loyalist Legion that I was playing that day, Legio Eldingar. Thankfully, because of that YouTube channel, all the Titan Legions there are up on images on their um, YouTube channel, because they took photos of everything, and they got a video of 
every Titan Legion that was at the event. That's right. And they, they did a fantastic job. I think they did the best job of anybody. And in fact, I think they were the only people really reporting on the event. I don't think Games Workshop produced too much from the event. But yeah, the, uh, the guys down in Portsmouth on the YouTube channel, they did a fantastic job. Chronicled the whole weekend. Okay. Um, so let's start actually segueing into the actual talk about the Brawl set. So obviously, um, where I l learned about you, and uh, where you've got some renown in our hobby, I suppose, is the creation of a rules pack to replace the match play mission system that exists in the core rulebook. Let's start with the question of why did you do it? I mean, a lot of people very happy you did it, but let's start right at the start. Okay, why did I go for it? Well, the main thing is that I play quite a lot of Titanicus. It's my main game system at the moment, although I also play X-Wing, Star Wars Legion, and Warhammer 40,000, amongst other things. But in most of the games that I play, all of the missions are fair. And of course, the one thing that frustrated me more than anything else was the fact that the missions are lopsided. And I'm not sure if that was an intentional outcome of the rules designing team at Games Workshop or Specialist Games, or if it's something of an oversight. But everybody that I played, and I, I generally played the same three or four people, we all agreed that there is an imbalance in the existing missions. So I set about writing my own rule set. Now, the rule set that I've distributed here, and it's in the second version now, I wrote whilst I was on holiday. So we took the kids to Butlins in Skegness for a week. And in the evenings, while the children were fast asleep, having worn themselves out on a day of fairground rides, I spent my evenings writing the rules pack. And my main aim was firstly to broaden the missions. So let's have 10 missions instead of just the six. But secondly, and most importantly, make sure that all of the missions give everybody an equal chance of winning. So all of the missions score 25 victory points if you fulfill all of the victory conditions. And of course, if you only uh, uh, succeed in and you score 10, 15, 20 victory points. The second reason for doing it, apart from just having a level playing field, was also to allow people to tailor their missions to suit their army, rather than the other way around. I've come from a tournament background with Warhammer 40,000, especially in the tail end of 5th edition, 6th and 7th edition, and I wasn't a very good tournament player, but I love tournaments. You know, the camaraderie, the friendliness, and the fun of a tournament, you know, there's nothing to beat it. And, of course, in those, you have fair missions, clearly defined victory conditions. So I've taken the, the ethos of an old tournament campaign pack and then put it into Titanicus. So the idea was that we've got equal points, first of all, but secondly, to have selectable, not random, but selectable secondary conditions, which a player can select to suit his play style. And my hope there was that people would be able to produce some weird and wonderful maniple designs. So you could go for an all close combat army, or you could go for an army which consists of nothing but warhounds and have an equal chance of winning. Yeah. Um... And before we sort of move on to digging deep into the rules, um, I suppose I should ask, is this the first time you sat down and created a rules pack? It seems pretty slick, to be honest. 
Uh, it's not the first time I've done something like this, although it's the first time I've done it for Titanicus. Previously, I've produced um, a couple of different documents. So being a squat player in 40k, I produced a 7th edition squat Fandex codex, um, which I'm really quite proud of. That was a massive, massive document, about 100 pages or so. That took me several years to write, although I produced it just at lunchtimes when I was at work. Um, and a few people use that across Europe, I think. Not many, but a few. And I've also produced a Unification Wars supplement, which I know the guys out in Australia are using. Both of those bolt onto the 7th edition Age of Darkness rules. Um, it's basically Warhammer 7th edition. And so I've produced those. I love writing missions. You know, writing missions and writing fluff and background is my favourite thing. Um, so when there was a need to produce some fair missions, I jumped at it. So the actual in-game procedures, um, going through your list, you don't seem to make that many large changes to the system other than the introduction of the missions. No, that's right. And, th and that was intentional. So what I didn't want to do was to come along and drastically change the feel or the rules of the overall game. All I wanted to do was to bring in slight tweaks to the missions. So some of the missions are already very similar to the original book missions. And I wanted to keep the pre-game procedure as close as possible. So if we take a look at page three of the document, then we have the, the modified pre-game procedure. It is largely as per the book. So on page 84 of the Titanicus rules book, there is the pre-game procedure. What you have to change to use this rule pack is to place out some objective markers before the game begins. And the reason for that is that there's now 10 missions and some of the missions require a single objective at the middle of the table or sometimes it requires up to three objectives spread out over no man's land in between the two deployment areas. And of course, if you select your mission in secret and then tell your opponent that you need to place three objectives, well, of course, you've given the game away. So a big part of the pre-game procedure is now to place an objective in the centre of the table and then to roll off and place three more objectives randomly across no man's land. That means that you might be going for a mission with objectives and you might not, but you've not given the game away. So it's to make sure that you can select any mission without sometimes giving the game away, which was a, a criticism of the original rules pack. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because, yeah, I mean, I know you talk here in a minute about keeping missions a secret. Um, obviously, that's the weird rules interaction people have picked upon. The, the game seems to indicate that you're meant to keep the primary missions secret, but then they put a line in where you reveal them after stratagems have been declared. So That's right. and in the, That's one of the big changes. And the idea to keep them secret actually came from Mark, who's one of the two Canadian guys who runs the Age of Darkness podcast over in Canada. And I'm Good friends with Mark and JP who run that particular podcast, and they're good guys. And Mark, in particular, is a very, very good Titanicus player and a very good tournament player, actually. And they talked on the podcast one week about how to fix Titanicus, and the main thing was simply to keep your mission secret. So I incorporated that into my rules pack and then elaborated over the 10 missions. 
down here in Oklahoma, we got playing, and we thought that was how the game was meant to be because we misread the rule set. Um, <laughs> and I never actually reread the section that well, so I did a review of the match play rules a couple of months ago, and I just skipped straight over that. So, oh, you keep it secret. And then someone emails me going, uh, "It's not the case." I went back and read it, and I was like, "Oh, oh yeah." So um, I I like the fact it's laid out like that in your rule set because it really I it adds something great to the game. Um, it's been something and I've I been harping on about for a while. You know, I when I wrote these missions, I tried to think. You know, if you were in a a real war zone, what objectives would you be asked to go and do? Um, and I've got a friend of mine who's in the army. Um, or was in the army for a long time. Um, he was in the Royal Engineers. And I, I often asked him, you know, if you're in a war zone, what do you end up doing? You know, for him, it was building bridges or building pipelines or blowing things up sometimes. But I really tried to think into, not just go and grab an objective because it says there's an objective. I really tried to put a little bit of fluff behind why you were trying to grab that objective or why you're trying to clear a particular area to try and make it as realistic as possible. But of course, you know, what the enemy's doing, you just see them coming towards you trying to blow you up. But why are they doing it? You don't know. And that element of surprise and mystery really makes the game very different from, I think, any other war game that's on the market at the moment. Yeah. No, it, absolutely. I mean, it's... Back when... 40k first came out with the tactical objective deck. My favorite way of playing that was keeping the mission secret, um, despite the fact it had flaws with the drunken commander issues where you'd get weird orders coming in every other turn. The not knowing what your opponent was going to do was always, always made the game interesting. So, yeah. It was just a different way of playing. I enjoyed those tactical objectives. I agree with you that they were a little bit schizophrenic sometimes. You might be chasing an objective on the left flank, and then it switches to killing their warlord in the next turn. But I think possibly in real life, that's probably not unrealistic that the grunts on the ground don't know what's going on up at the top and why they're doing these things. Yeah, I, I, I think most good fixes I've seen for it is, I mean, it's the Titanicus fix, draw to pick. Um, gives you a little bit more control about what you're going to do. Um, can force you to make some bad decisions, but... You're making the least worst decision. I think that's also important for Titanicus because we're playing quite a slow-moving game. You know, the fastest model that you've got is a Warhound, which can move between 8 and 12 inches. But generally, if you're playing with the big boys, you're only moving 4 or 6 inches a turn with a Warlord. And you can't be going chasing objectives on either flank from turn 1 to turn 2. It's just not possible. But having one clear objective... But hiding it from your opponent makes for a very exciting game. Yeah, yeah, and I like, and you've kept the my favorite thing is where you actually get to pick your mission because limitedly you get those two choices. You get to pick the one you want to do. Yeah, and that's one of the things I like most about Titanicus, and I absolutely wanted to keep that simply because it helps you to start to theme your army. Rather, you know, I play tournaments. And in a tournament, especially for 40k, then you have to build your army to suit the mission. And I wanted to go the other way. I wanted you to be able to pick the mission that suited your army. And that's something that came from either 2nd edition Space Marine, the old 6mm epic game, or Epic Armageddon. It was one of the two. And in that, there was three orphans, and you could win the game by fulfilling any of them. 
So it was either destroying X amount of your opponents, or it was claiming an objective, or it was something else. And you didn't have to decide before the game how you were going to win. You simply checked at the end of round three, end of round four, end of round five. And if you'd managed to succeed in any of the conditions, you won. And so I think Titanicus is half that and half a 40k mission. So I like it. It's a good balance. Yeah, no, um, I suppose working down that, sort of, your pre-game procedure is real nice. I'm just going to, uh, if folks haven't looked at the document, go and look at the document. That page, the page three pre-game procedure is something I wish was in the core book because it isn't a clear way just to get your game set up. You're flicking through numerous pages. It's just nice to see it all out there on one page. I like the, the secondary missions you get to then tack on because you um, set that as something you actually pick rather than rolling, which is, again, pretty awesome. Absolutely, yeah. And th that was intentional to make sure that you can choose missions that suit your army. So you can really go crazy with your army build. You can go all close combat or you can go for a long-range shooting army. And rather than drawing a random mission which your army just can't fulfil, you can really cherry-pick a mission, a secondary mission, that is, that really suits your army. So you're not guaranteeing yourself the extra 10 points, but you're giving yourself a fair chance. And that's what I like about the game, is that you've got a fair chance, even though you've decided to go for something pretty crazy in your army build. Yeah, and taking a moment just to, to dig deep into the secondary missions, because they're, they're a good depth, but there isn't as much as there is in the main missions. It is really nice to see that they're all a flat 10 points. There's no sort of variability in it. Um, that's really good for balanced play. Um... That's right. And don't forget that these don't replace the stratagems. So you can still have your stratagems where you might be getting an extra five victory points for this or that if you decide to take that stratagem. So you can still um, twist the game to your advantage by choosing your primary mission, choosing a secondary mission, and then you can dig into your strategy cards, and if you've got four or five stratagem points to pick from, then you might still go for one of those strategies where you can give yourself an extra two or three points. But all of that helps you to choose a mission which your Legio can succeed mm, at. Absolutely. I and mean, just to, for the listeners, quite a lot of these mission objectives are such like secure the centre of the table, secure a certain objective, survive with so many points left with your forces, which are all pretty well... If there's something you're going into the game knowing you've got to do, it's not going to be really hard to pull off, which can be the case in a lot of the secondary objectives in the primary missions from the actual core rulebook. And that's real nice to see as well. That's right. Um, and it was also one of the intentions was to actually mean that you can strategize or um, synergize, there's the word, you can synergize your secondary mission with your primary mission. So, for example, if your primary mission is to go and hold the centre of the board, one of the secondary missions is also to hold the centre of the board. So if you're going for it, you know, you go all in, all your chips into the centre, and you've got the chance of getting 35-point victory points just by pushing everything towards the centre. Now, the downside of that is that you can't hide what you're going for. So I really like that game of poker where... You can choose a secondary which complements your primary mission, but then you really telegraph into your opponent, I'm going for the centre of the board. Or you can be sneaky and you can go for a secondary mission which is going to distract your opponent away from your primary mission. So, for example, you might have a couple of titans out on the flanks, 
but then half your Titan battle group is going for the centre of the board, and you're you're making your opponent second guess what you're doing, and all of that adds to that mystery, that fog of war. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, I like, I do, like that. The secondary missions are really good, and the fact you've got ten of them, like you've got ten with the missions, it does mean it's going to take a very long time for players to get used to understanding what the opponent's going to do. It's there are plenty of options the player could be doing that you're not going to be able to, you know, you said it's a, a poker analogy. It's going to be very hard to work out what card they're holding. That's right. And there are more in the works, actually. Um, up until February this year, I was actually working on about another 10 primary missions. Um, but then COVID-19 struck and all of that has fallen by the wayside. But when I get back to work, hopefully in September, and I spend 10 or 20 nights a week in a hotel again for work, then that's when I get things like this produced. So there may be a second supplement coming in 2021 with even more primary missions. Nice. Okay. So let's sort of actually spend some time actually digging into the actual missions themselves um, before we get onto the final couple of stuff. Um, so, I mean, the actual basis of each of the missions you've got, so the actual primary missions, you've got a chunk of fluff text, which is nice. Uh, well, that really comes from some of the events that I used to attend. And I'm a little bit schizophrenic in the sorts of events that I do attend. I love, I love competitive tournaments, and I also absolutely love narrative events, and I attend both. Um, you know, if I go to a tournament, I'm generally in the bottom third anyway, so I'm not a great tournament player. What I love about tournaments is actually the spirit of the tournament and how the rules are written. Everything is very, very clear and very defined. With narrative play and narrative weekends, I love narrative weekends. They're a lot more relaxed. They're a lot more, I'm not going to say they're more fun, but they're a more relaxed environment. But sometimes you can drive a bus through the rules or you can drive a bus through the missions. So I've tried to combine the narrative fluff that you get from a campaign weekend with the rules that, and the missions that you'd get at a tournament. And here in the UK, some of the listeners might know of a guy called Tim King. Tim King has worked for a long time at the Northwest Gaming Centre over in Stockport in Manchester. And Tim King runs Caledonian, which organises the best 40k tournaments in the world. And everything he does has a fluff section, but it's also very, very hard and fast with the rules. And there's a lot of events like that in the UK. I can't speak for the rest of the world. But in the UK in particular, we have very, very hard competitive tournaments. We have narrative events and we have something in the middle which are almost narrative tournaments. So they're events where there is a story. You're playing for a particular objective at the end of the weekend, but also it's a competitive environment. So it's neither one or the other. And that's what I've tried to draw here is to give the players a little bit of fluff to read through to know why they're playing a mission, but then also give the very clear, explicit victory conditions. So as best I could t uh, see, the all the mission objectives are scored at the end of the game. That's. I think there's there's one mission which you score through the game, uh, and I think it's mission nine or ten where you score it through the game. Uh, let me see. There we are, mission ten, which is hold ground. Um, yeah, that one where you earn four victory points for each of the three numbered objectives, 
at the end of round three and the end of round four. But that's the only one which you score through the game. The others, yeah, you score at the end of the game. Okay. Um, and then mission nine is the one where you're actually manipulating the objectives. You start moving them. That's right. And I really had quite a crisis of confidence about that one. That reminded me too much of the relic from Warhammer 40,000. And if you've ever played 40K, and I think it was a 6th ed and 7th edition mission, I don't know anybody who liked the relic. And it's the relic is where there's a single objective in the middle of the board. If you've got a fast unit, it races up to it and races away. And in 40K, it's a really, really one-sided um, tournament mission. And I don't know anybody who likes it. But of course, that's because both players are going for the same mission in this. Very unlikely, there's only a 1 in 10 chance, that both players are going for the same mission. So that puts a different spin on things. But with Rescue Mission, Mission 9, then there is a, a Titan crew that you need to rescue from the centre of the board, represented by an objective marker. And if you can rescue that objective marker and get it either off the board or into your deployment zone, then you're going to score big points. Okay. That actually leads me to one of my sort of one of the many reasons I want to talk to you. I, reading this, I can't. Do you put the when you if you select rescue mission, are you supposed to put another marker down on that central objective, or do you actually move the one you set down in the opening section? I guess there, there's an issue there, isn't there? That perhaps you ought to be setting up two objectives on the center spot, so that if both of you, because I think there's two or three missions actually which need the central objective, so possibly there ought to be. One objective for player A and another for player B, so that if you have happened to draw the same one, yeah, you can score it. Okay, that's what I thought. I just, I was reading them through the other day, um, and I was like, oh, that's a weird rules interaction. So I was going to, wanted to get your insight on it. So yeah, okay. So the idea would be to set two objectives up in the center. That's easily done. That's right. And that, that's why, actually, it's good to have this feedback. And um, that's just a word to your listeners, actually, that if you do have any feedback or criticism or constructive comments on the rules, please do get in contact because I rarely play these missions, actually. Um, I probably play one game every two or three weeks. So if people are out there playing these missions regularly and they're finding loopholes or if they're finding some of the missions are just a lot harder to achieve than others, please get in contact. So the next point I was going to sort of touch on, which is the best practices for doing the, using these missions, um, the, the dual uh, objectives there. I mean, whole, gr whole ground is an interesting one, because obviously after the player will be very aware of your mission, you should start scoring the victory points. Um, yes, some of the missions you can't disguise. So, for example, mission 10, hold ground. By turn three, you're starting to score the objective. So on turn three, you've got to reveal. You've got to be honest with your opponent. So some of the missions are going to become apparent as you play, and then it's up to your opponent to stop you. Some of them, yeah, you're waiting till the very end of the game. And I like that dynamic that there's this real face-off, this real poker game through the game, and trying to guess which of the two missions your opponent has selected. Thanks. Is this your... I mean, obviously the one we're looking at now is the second version of this rule set? That's right, yeah. So I released the original version at the end of 2019. The original version was just written for Titans. 
and it made no mention whatsoever of Imperial, or, yeah, of Imperial Knights. And then one of the guys on uh, the Adeptus Titanicus Facebook group, a chap called Lucas Lyons, and mm -hmm. I think you've had Lucas on the show recently. Yeah, I have, yeah. Guy. Yeah. Um, he actually came on to um, Messenger and asked me, can you include Imperial Knights? And I must admit, when I wrote the missions, I didn't really think about Knights because I don't play with Knights. So I just wrote it for Warlords, Reavers and Warhounds. And so I had to go back into the rule sets. Um, so I did that over Christmas 2019 and changed the, the missions or changed the wording to include Imperial Knights. And it became quite tricky, actually, because some of the rules or some of the missions are very, very easy for a Knight player to achieve, whereas they're very hard for a, a Titan Maniple to achieve, especially because Titans are so fast moving. So there might be some imbalance there. And again, if there's feedback, then I'd like to hear it. But one thing I would like to say about the, the missions, the missions have a, a caveat in them that says if your army consists solely of knights, then these alternate rules apply. So what I'm trying to show there is that if, for example, you've got 1,500 points of titans, and you've got two or three hundred points of knights, the titans are there to do the heavy lifting. The titans are there to win the game for you, and the knights are really just an auxiliary force. So in that case, it's the titans that have got to secure the objectives. The only time your knights can win the game for you is if you have an army that consists solely of knights. And that's something that I'm not sure is quite clear in the rules pack, and possibly needs a, another little introduction at the start of the third edition of the document, whenever that comes out, to say that it's only if you have an army that consists solely of knights that your knights can score the mission. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, yes. Now I'll make sure I'm pointing out to people when they use the set of. I've just I've been thinking it through actually uh, with the rescue mission. Actually, I think the best um, solution would be that once you get a unit to the center of the table and you're initiating the rescue mission, you put down the rescue token. That's possibly an alternative, yes. Because that way you then deploy the rescue token and because then you, your opponent knows what you're doing anyway. So you could throw the token out and then you try and retrieve that. Because that would still allow you to have the central objective there if for some reason you were doing a, a secure the objective secondary mission as well. That's right. I think there's a little mechanic needs to be written into the, the rule mm. supplements if both of you are going for the same central objective. Yeah. So that definitely needs a little bit of thought. Yeah. Which brings me to the slight other point, because I was looking at your uh, deployment maps, because you you still use the deployment maps from the core book? I do for, yeah, for, for the main missions, yes. Um, and again, the reason for that is that I, the, more, the more that you stray away from the standard book, the less people use your mission pack. So if you write, I mean, I could write a whole new game, but no one's going to play it because they want to pick up, they want a pickup game where they're playing what they're familiar with. So keeping as much as per the book as possible and only making as few tweaks as possible was an intentional aim of the packet. What I would say as a, a regular tournament goer, certainly up until about three or four years ago, time is short. And everything that you can do to simplify the game, the better. And I know that in most tournaments I've ever attended, if we had the choice, 
we just do 12 inches on, you know, uh, battle lines as it's called now, and we would play a pitch battle. And anything, anything that you add to the game that complicates deployment or complicates the setup zone, anything that you've got to measure out with dice and a tape measure, you're adding five or ten minutes to what is quite a tight time frame anyway. So I try to keep things as simple as possible. I find the three deployment styles we've got in the core book are they're not great. I mean, they're, they're okay. They work pretty well, but the close quarters is finickety to do because you've got to put your titans down in the order of almost guess. That's right, yeah. Um, and again, that takes 10 or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is the one where you've got to randomly determine which titan's in which part of your deployment zone, which is weird. That's it, yeah. Um, and then you just... and I, I think they're fine for a narrative mission. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But if you're playing, a, if, if you're short on time, you know, for example, in a, if you're playing three games in a single day, you know, you're really looking at no more than two and a, two and a quarter hours per mission. And if you're using up half an hour of that just to put your toys on the table, that doesn't leave much time for you to actually play the game. Yeah. So, I mean, I was looking at the standard 12 inches in. I mean, obviously, you've got, you, there's only 12 inches in. There's no point doing it from the flanks or anything because we play on a 4x4. Four four. So, you send it 12 inches in and then one which should be in the corner and one which should be table quarters. Because table quarters is a really fun deployment system because you've got a lot of ability to go out on the flanks there. That's right. And that... that... That really brings some of the long-range firepower into the game as well. Something like a Warlord with volcano cannons or the missile launchers up top, which have got 120-inch range, they very rarely come into their own on a 48 by 48 table. And there's the new Titan, the Nemesis Warbringer, which is obviously a long-range slugger. But on a game on a 48 by 48 table, you're rarely more than two foot away from an enemy Titan. So it's sometimes hard to really maximise the firepower from those. With the table quarters, you know, you can be five foot away from the other end of the board almost. Yeah, and that's the idea. If, on the diagonal. If I can have one that, you know, puts you closer together than the 12 inches at the start, one that's traditional and one which you, you pack, pushed into the corners, I think that would give a nice variation. Um, and it would be simpler to work and out. The other question, what do you do, what, what do, you do for scenery? How much scenery do you use and how much line of sight scenery? There, there's a question. <laughs> well, that's the eternal debate in Titanicus at the moment. Um, <laughs> but it's come up in every single interview I've done because I don't think there's a really good quick answer to it. Uh, you look at the core rule book and it describes three styles of table, you know, the open, the rugged and the dense without telling us what that means. Um, I actually got an email in my drafts uh, to go to the Titanicus FAQ address asking them to... Um, Provide some photos in the next FAQ document. Because <laughs> they've done it for the new 40k book. Uh, that's right. They're getting a lot better at that. And I think that's because 9th edition 40k really has been written by Reese and the guys over in America as a tournament game. And it's the first time they've really thought about writing a tournament game since 5th edition. 8th edition was close, but there was a couple of minor issues. 9th edition looks really, really tight. Um, now... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say I attended the... So in February this year, I attended the Titan Walks event at Warhammer World. And I think there was 48 players for Titanicus. And on the other side of the hall, they had something like 40 or so players for Imperialis Aeronautica. 
So you've got almost 100 people gathered for a weekend to play specialist games, and it blew them away. They weren't expecting those numbers. And apparently they were still be building scenery for Titanicus, I think, the night before the event. And I think there was an admission that they didn't have enough scenery. And what they did on the tables is essentially they had a two-foot diameter area in the middle of the table where all of the scenery was. So they clustered a, a circle of scenery in the middle of the table, one or two pieces of line of sight blocking, and quite a lot of smaller scenery. Now, personally, I play with as much scenery as possible. The reason for that, you know, firstly, I like a skirmish game, a city fight game. It allows, really, it makes Imperial Knights a little bit too strong. So that is the caveat. But not that withstanding, lots and lots of line of sight blocking terrain makes close combat armies viable. And I think a lot of people complain in 40k and in Titanicus, and they say that Alpha Strike, especially in 40k, is the real nail in the coffin of 40k. It's the worst thing about 40k, is that if you go first, you win. And I think 90% of the times, that is the truth. But all you need to do to stop that is put some scenery in the middle of the board. <laughs> and then suddenly movement and stratagems and getting around the table and actually thinking about it rather than just choosing a really strong army list and rolling some dice, you've really got to think about how your army's going to move, how it's going to get line of sight. And it really becomes a much more dynamic game. You've got to move oh, absolutely. to play the, the game. My, my only concern, I mean, this is my, my recent concern, I spent a lot of money buying the Titanic scenery, and I'm thinking I've got about 10 of the scenery boxes um, equivalent of. So the last game I played, I had all my city scenery on the table. And movement stopped being possible. You get to that threshold of, you know, making that real dense city and suddenly your warlords can never get in line of sight. Not just because there are buildings, but because they can't move fast enough. That's true as well. Um, the one thing I've noticed with the Adeptus Titanicus scenery is it seems a bit too small. Um, I've got quite a lot of it, although I use most of my Adeptus Titanicus scenery to build my Imperator Titan. Um, so, so most of most of my scenery is piled on on top of a great big uh, on top of a great big Titan, but it seems too small. Even if you've got three or four pieces stacked up, it still seems a bit small. I use the Drop Zone Commander cardboard scenery for I think twenty pounds, twenty pounds GDP, um, which is probably thirty thirty dollars American. You've got enough scenery in that Drop Zone Commander cardboard box, at least inch tables. And it's wonderful. You know, it takes probably an hour to build 30 or 40 buildings. There's no bases on it, so you can move around very nicely. There's a real mixture of heights and styles, and it, it looks really realistic. Yeah. I, I struggle because my primary play location is actually Games Workshop Store. So my entire collection is... Which, is, which was fine because, I mean, last year I was making plenty of money in the oil field, so I just brought a lot of the Titanicus boxes. Um, but each one of the Civitas boxes had the three, uh, the four sprues, and I'd use it to build a building. Um, and I'd sit. That's right. It's a very expensive way of building yeah. a city. And I would sit there on an Excel spreadsheet for a day before I brought it, planning out the building <laughs> to get the maximum height. And and you can get some really nice structures out of it. And I have, but I've also got too much of it now, which is. It's it's an expensive way to build it. Yeah, it is. But they are real nice buildings. Um, takes forever to paint though, which is. My current crisis. But. Yes, yeah. 
which again, those drop fleet, drop fleet commander buildings are real nice for that purpose. Um, they're fantastic. They really are. They're an absolute godsend. And I think back to, you know, when I started in this, uh, in this hobby 30 years ago, everything was homemade. And even when I came back into the hobby in 2009, 2010, there was still a large amount of homemade scenery, even though by the time I came back into 5th edition, all the kits existed. I remember when I played 2nd edition, there was only one tank. Um, and now suddenly I've come back into 5th edition 10 years later and everything exists. You know, it was a real kid in a sweet shop situation where I could just have everything I ever wanted, which was great. But even 10 or 12 years ago, tables were generally an MDF sheet painted green with a bit of flock on, polystyrene hills and some boxes for buildings and scenery has come on massively just in the last five or six years i've found laser engraved mdf scenery we've now got laser printed scenery um and of course the uh, the mouse map table maps you know it makes for a really immersive hobby now oh yeah didn't used to occur yeah the battle maps are the perhaps the one of the Undersung but greatest changes to the hobby. I recently picked up a one specially designed for Titanicus. It's a city grid, at Titanicus scale, and it's really good. It's it's actually going to solve a lot of my scenery issues because I'm going to be able to easily mark out firing lanes in the dense scenery. That's it. And actually, most of the six by four mats are also marked out with forty k um, deployment zones as well. If you notice. So the pitch battle, the diagonal, and the, I think, it, I can't remember the, the proper name for it, but it's the football pitch deployment where you're playing up and down the length of the table. All of those are actually marked out on the rubber mat, which is fantastic. Yeah, quite a lot of them do. Sadly, the, my big grasslands one doesn't have those marked out, but that's a, cause I got that, got that one a while ago. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with that. And 3D printing is also pretty awesome. I know I, back when I was expecting or initially planning a much larger event in September, because once we passed the first virus peak, I was hoping that it would be a lot later we saw the second ramp up. So I was expecting to get a, a larger event. Um, I'd spent some time really looking at 3D printing some uh, volcanic sort of scenery to go on a lava-based um, tape. Because that'd look really great for the Titans. Because, you know, big, big jagged cliffs and have long, long black, uh, blocking scenery. Um, especially for the Warhounds. Uh, so my aim, if I can if I can get a table that cut, stops Warhounds being seen a lot, I think that's a good balancing fact. It's when you put too much, it's when you put too much scenery that blocks the Warlords who start getting into trouble. Because you kind of want the, you kind of want the, everyone to be able to shoot at the Warlord, even if the Warlord's guns have trouble finding lines of sight. Oh, that brings an interesting question. Which of the advanced rules do you play? And I do remember you had a podcast about this a few months ago. Do you play with the destructive buildings rule where you get to blow up the buildings? Yes, when I have the time to do it. Yes. My my rule of thumb is each optional rule will add 15 minutes to the game. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think that the only one which is really essential, I think some of them are a little bit fluffy. They're probably nice to have ideas and they probably realise that it would make the game a bit clunky. But blowing up the building should be in the main rule book. That should be a standard rule. Yeah, I think the only reason it's not, and the reason I still put a bit of an asterisk next to it, is there isn't a good way to assign armor values to scenery. It's a... No, no, that, that's very vague. It's agree it with your uh, opponent. And I think any system that you 
hash out to come up with a way to assign those armor values is going to add so much time to the game. And it just leads to potential arguments. And gamers are, we're special people, I'll admit that. And we're all right. And anything that you can do to avoid a conflict is going to make for a more fun experience. So I think you're absolutely right. It should be in the game, but we need to help people to have, you know, standard values yeah. for yeah, I mean, armor. Up, up in the OKC group that we I play with, we usually do, uh, I think it's four, an armor value of four plus inches in height of the structure. Oh, that's quite neat. Yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't make the most narrative sense at times because it means that bigger buildings are harder to destroy, but it is the best gameplay way because it also means you can't just snipe out the line of sight blocking scenery. And I think that's important. Um, we've got to remember that whatever we do with the war game, it is a simulated experience. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. Simple is always best. Getting that number tied down of what the initial base value has been the hardest point. I think we started like seven plus height and nothing was ever able to be destroyed. So we brought it down a fair bit. But, um, but it's very hard. Like I say, I do find it adds time to the game, especially when you get a Titan that goes up in a giant explosion. You spend more time rolling to destroy the buildings than you do for the opponent's Titans. That's right. But I think, you know, if you if you think about you really were that Titan Princeps, you would be doing that. That's an absolutely valid tactic that a Titan Princeps would be using in a war. So it, it should be in the rules, I think. I, I, well, I will add, add, add a caveat that I've never actually done it myself. Um, it's something that I'm really desperate to bring into my games with my regular opponents, but we've not got round to yet. We're still learning the rules. Um, but that's something I really want to add in as soon as possible. Yeah. Well, actually, there's one last thing in this rulebook, and I suppose we should touch on it for a, a bit. Um, you've, you've got those set piece missions that don't really fit into the match play stuff, but they're actually pretty awesome to talk about as well. Um, oh, as you've described them, that's exactly how I develop them. So, yeah, let's let's talk about those for a moment. I'll let you introduce them, okay. and then we'll talk about them. Yeah, so is it... Yeah, because I've only got page 10. So the end of the uh, your book you put together, the little booklet, you have your um, set-piece missions that don't really fit as neatly into the rest of the structure of the document, but they are really interesting resources to have there. I, they're something that's missing from the actual Titanicus book. Uh, when I saw them, I realized they were missing because obviously the 40k books are piles of set piece missions in addition to their standard match play set. Um, so, yeah, I've got two of them printed out here. Are there more than just the two? I can't remember. When I wrote the missions, I probably wrote about 20 missions and I probably got about another 10 missions in my back pocket as well for perhaps a, a third version of this supplement to come in 2021. But I realized that when you're trying to write a balanced mission, there's some things that you just can't do. And so the two set piece missions on page 10 are missions which were really, really fun missions, interesting missions, which I think people would probably enjoy playing, but they don't fit the 25 victory points per side. They don't make for an very nice set pieces. So rather than leave them out, I simply decided to make an appendix at the end of the booklet and drop these two missions in. So Mission A, Scorched Earth, and Mission B, Capture the Castle, are good, fun missions to play if you've got a little bit more time. Um, the rules aren't much longer than a standard mission, but they're, they're lopsided missions. So you've got an attacker and a defender, generally. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, the Capture the Castle missions, when I just really want to go out and play, it's just a... It just looks... I haven't got it, haven't seen a mission like it in a Games Workshop release. Um, for the listeners who aren't seeing this at the moment, the um, the deployment zones are, like, both the both players are on one table edge, and their objectives are on the other table edge. You're actually starting really close to your opponent. That's right. So the setup area, obviously, we're always playing on a 48-inch square board. There's two L-shaped deployment zones, one for zone A, one for zone B. So both of the players are starting in an L-shaped deployment zone, both on the same side of the board, separated by a gap. You're then both racing to get to the other side of the board and to capture a castle. And both players want to go and capture it. Now, of course, you couldn't do this in the straightforward um, hidden deployment missions because there's no way we could make this work. But as a set-piece mission, it's a good piece of fun. And I've got quite a lot of missions in my back pocket like this which don't suit the, the main structure of the game but still make for good fun missions nonetheless. And it's the sort of thing, actually, that we're seeing being released in White Dwarf. I notice in this this month's White Dwarf, which actually came through my postbox this morning, that there is a Titanicus mission in there. And again, it's not necessarily a straight mission, because I think the two different sides have different points values. But it's the sort of thing that makes for a fun game, but it's something you might play like Space Hulk in the olden days. You've got to play the mission as the goodies and the baddies, play the mission both ways round, to see who gets the best out of the mission. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's to be honest, I, I don't keep it with White Dwarf like I used to, and I know they've released quite a few single Titanicus missions that have just passed me by. Um, but I don't want to... I probably should amend my statement saying Games Workshop aren't producing them, but they don't include them as well in the core rulebooks other than the narrative missions. They are putting out some content in White Dwarf, and I think what Specialist Games aim to do now is to do one release for each of their Specialist Games every quarter. So you're aiming to look at um, one mission for Titanicus every three months, and that's a sort of um, repeat that we're finding in White Dwarf nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, I, I need to start probably trying to track down copies of the so I can start talking about them on the podcast some more. Especially, I've started reviewing the individual narrative missions um, at the sort of front end of these podcasts um, because I I really enjoy the narrative missions, but they aren't necessarily that pleasant to play if you don't go in and make some adjustments. No, they're certainly not. They're not balanced missions. But again, I think we're going back to the point we made at the very start of the evening. Actually, is that the the Titanicus missions in the rulebook weren't balanced. And I'd really love to hear from the developers of the game, I'd love to hear from the people who wrote the rules, whether that was intentional, whether that was an oversight, whether it was something they, they put in and didn't think about. You know, Did they really go for imbalanced missions and we've broken their game by making the missions balanced? Or is it vice versa? I'd really love to hear from them. On yeah, that. it's the actual... I mean, the core match play rules are really bizarre um i can't quite get my head around the mechanics of it um no i mean when i when i did this or before i started my supplement i actually sat down with an excel spreadsheet because i'm also a geek as well as a nerd and i sat down with an excel spreadsheet and i crunched through the numbers 
of how many victory points you could get maximum out of the standard book missions. And some of them max out at between 25 and 35 points. And one of them maxes out at about 60 points for a 1750-point battle. And so if you're unlucky in your choice and your opponent's very lucky in his role of mission, you might be playing a mission where you can score at most 30 points and he can score 60 points. And that's just not a game. That's... that's yeah, especially when you start looking at the um, tertiary mission. Because um, those tertiary cards, you get the bonuses quite often are based on destroying titans. You stack that with the standard um, kill the opponent card, which is the most powerful card, and you just start doubling, tripling the amount of victory uh, points. That's you right. Get. You, you can score 70 or 80 points then in a mission. And if your opponent can get at most 20 or 30 points, it doesn't matter if you're the best player in the world. If you roll the wrong dice in choosing your mission in the first five minutes of a game, you're done for. You, you really can't win. So, yeah, that, that's why I like that the balanced missions yeah. so much. And they tried to fix it in the first uh, FAQ they put out. They lowered the points you can score on Engage and Destroy. But it just didn't fix the base problem with it, that it was the easiest mission to complete. Um, that's right. That's one of the many things I like about this rule set you've got. There isn't an Engage and, <laughs> there are, there isn't an engage and Destroy. Um, there's ones which are destroy particular titans, but, you know, there's not just a destroy any titan you can, unless I've completely missed That's it. That's right. Um, which is, I'm, a, I'm always a fan of missions that are about holding objectives more than just shooting your opponent. Because you're going to shoot the enemy anyway, so it's going to be... You know. Yeah, it's, you're never not doing that. So mm -hmm. really, it's just, why are you shooting the enemy? It's, it's all for context. Yeah. Okay, well, before we bring this to a close, because I do have, like, ten minutes before I've got to get out of my house. Um, no problem. You've sort of hinted a few times that we've got a third version coming. Um, do you have anything you want to add and talk about what this future is going to bring? Um, Nothing, really. There's just a couple of minor rules tweaks. There's something in the setup procedure way back on page three that needs changing. Um, so this is something we can air on the podcast now. Um, it says that you don't determine the deployment map until position eight. That needs to be at position three because you've got to uh, you've got to decide your deployment map before you can deploy the three objectives. So that's something that needs to change. But other than that, all I want to do is add more missions. It might be that I add more of the standard missions, or it might be I simply add them as set pieces. Or I might write a short campaign at the back. Um, I'm not sure yet, but when I get back to work, hopefully in September, and I'll get a little bit more free time in the evenings, then that's something I'll do. Okay, that's awesome. Okay. Well, anyway, thanks for coming along and having the chat with me. And uh, hopefully when you get uh, version 3 out here, middle of next year, we'll sit down and talk about it again or something. Um... Perfect. That would be my pleasure. Okay, and that brings the show to a close. I want to thank Graham again for coming on this podcast. It was really good fun talking to him. We talked for a good two hours about all things Titanicus, and I cut a lot of good conversations out of this, bringing it down to a more manageable length. I'm going to include those conversations in future episodes uh, when the time is right, as we got really off track in a few places. I really implore anyone who's getting a chance to get games in to go and give these match play rules a look. They are really good, produce some really exciting games. Um, really happy with them. Um, 
and I'll give you guys some more feedback about them when I finish using them at the Iron Halo at the end of this month. Just once more before we close out, I do want to once again ask everyone to go and rate and review the show on their podcasting app of choice. I really don't have many reviews out there on the iTunes store or any of the other apps, and it really does help the visibility of this show, and that will help me. So please just take five minutes, go and mark down some stars, leave me a review. Um, any negative feedback, please email me at god.engine.com cast at gmail.com uh, I'm always willing to hear and listen to advice so there's that okay well I will see you next week uh, with another show don't know exactly what I'm doing yet I've got some stuff in the works but we'll see okay see you then Thank you again for listening to another episode of the God Engine Cast, a podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus game produced by Games Workshop. This show was written, recorded, and edited by Martin Emery. This podcast is completely unofficial and in no way endorsed by Games Workshop Limited. No challenge to any trademarks or copyrights have been intended. All rights are reserved by the respective owners. If you have any questions of the show, please email me at god.engine.cast at gmail.com or reach out to me through Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, I wish you all good fortune. Mm-hmm.